Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Bright Brains Podcast. Today, my guest is Brandon Anthony, an African-American citizen currently living in Kenya. We talk about his travels, his nonprofit, and mental health. Brandon, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Ah, man, thank you so much. Um, So, yeah, first off, my name is Brandon Anthony. Uh, most people these days know me as Brandon Be Happy. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I'm still a, a citizen of the U.S. Um, I've been traveling for the past four years um, mm-hmm. to multiple different countries, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Thailand, Egypt, South Africa, Amsterdam. Uh, I think that's them, like just like 11 countries or something in the past like four years. Um, and so, yeah, I've been here in Kenya for about five months. Um, but yeah, this is a place where I am actually in the process of uh, applying for long-term residency. So I'll be here for at least the next five years. That's awesome. So you've been to 11 different countries. How is it that you're able to travel to all these different countries? Is it a part of your job or... Anything like that? Man, I will tell you a crazy story, man. So actually, all of this started off on Reddit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a nonprofit for about five years, and we were looking for ways to sort of just expand, right? Um, and we had already been doing this one project that was community refrigerators, right, which is just free food. And instead of being at a food bank, we have a nice refrigerator that we partnered up with local restaurants in North Carolina. Um, But we are looking to get bigger, right? And Mm -hmm. so at the time, Reddit had this thing called RPAN, right? Which was public access network. And it was sort of like Instagram Live. But if you were on this, it didn't matter how many followers you had, you could literally make it to the front page of Reddit, right? And this is during the beginning of the pandemic. at the time, what had happened was I had actually just been fired from a job, right? Um, I was just homeless a year before at this time, right? Oh, wow. I was, I, yeah, so I was homeless for about a year, right, after a severe, like, alcohol use disorder. I just got this job and moved to New Orleans. I brought my girlfriend with me. I told everybody, don't worry, I'm not going to start drinking again, even though I'm in New Orleans. Because I have this job, I have this girl, I have this nonprofit, right? My mm-hmm. first day in New Orleans, I lose the job, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's right. wild, man. Yeah. The apartment that I was living in was connected to the job I had, right? Oh, man. So then you know, the person was like, hey, man, I heard you lost your job. You know, if you don't have something on the books by next month, I'm going to need you out, right? This just seems like it's a little bit too much of a headache, right? And then yeah. the girl that I brought with me, she only came, right, because I told her I could pay for everything because I have a job. So she went right back to Atlanta, right? So literally in the midst of three days of moving to New Orleans, uh, I lost all the foundations I thought I had. And so I literally at the time, all I had was a bicycle. And I would be riding this bicycle day after day because I was just trying to find uh, jobs mowing lawns, right? Mm-hmm. Or some type of yard work. That's what I come from, right? Like construction, yeah. yard work, stuff like this. But um, during that time, like, I actually, I was finding, like, a little bit of excitement. Um, and I was like, man, this is sort of a beautiful thing. Um, and then one day, like, things were just feeling a little bit rough. And I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this RPAN thing. 
Um, and one, like, I don't want to drink. And two, I, I think that this is just, for some reason, I was like, I think this is something people need to just be aware of, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I turned on our pan. And uh, the first episode was actually called Biking with a Black Dude, right? <laughs> Reco- uh, yeah, Biking with a Black Dude. I don't want to relapse for this hour. Ask me anything, right? Gotcha. Um, yeah. And that first episode, 10,000 people showed up, oh, right? Wow. And they were asking all these questions, you know? That to me seems so regular, right? Like, okay, so when you were homeless, how did you find food? How did you do this? So I was just telling the stories because, I mean, this was just my intelligence, right? Um, mm-hmm. And people on Reddit were just like, man, this is incredible, man. Like, I had no clue this is how you had to get around. And I'm like, yeah, this is just real life, you know? Um, and then eventually, by the end of the hour, lots of people were like, man, if you came back tomorrow and did this, like, I'd show up again, right? So I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, bet. I literally don't have a job. I'll be here tomorrow. So, so tomorrow, you know, about 12,000 people show up, show up the next day, boom, 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 boom. Next thing you know, by like 10 days into this, I'm having like, let's say 25,000 people a day tune in, right? Um, And I'm not making any money, right? Yeah, it's incredible, right? I'm not making any money, but I recognize it's amazing. Um, And so I start trying to plan, right? At the time, I had like $600 in my bank account to my name, right? And I'm like, all right, I need about 90 days to be able to figure out what this platform could be, right? So mm-hmm. I start asking on Reddit, right? I start being like, all right, y'all, y'all know any place I could go where I could get three months of rent for 500 right? And then I'd have like $100 to eat, right? Yeah. Uh, and I said, the main thing, though, is it's got to be a place that's cool with black folks, right? I'm from, you know, majority, like, uh, majority black cities, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, someone tells me Oaxaca, Mexico, right? And they say, mm-hmm. man, actually, in Oaxaca, right, in the center of our city, we prayed to a black dude who looked like you. And at the time, I had a big old afro, right? Yeah. And I'm like, what they you pray? talking about? And you said they yeah. prayed to a they're black like, dude? Yep. And they're like, yo, so the head of our church, and I went and saw this reality, is St. Martin, right? Yeah. And St. Martin is like the uh, saint of connection. And it, it is a black man with an afro, right? Um, huh. And in Oaxaca, Mexico, a lot of people there, actually, I'd say, uh, I'm not going to say the majority, but a large part of this population are considered Afro-descendants. And not just considered, mm. they identify as Afro-descendants. Um, mm. So when you go there, they literally see you and they're like, oh, snap, you look like my uncle, you look like my grandfather, because slavery didn't just happen in Northern America, right? There were also yeah. huge ports in Mexico and South America, right? So I had never really paid attention to the diaspora of slavery that also hit Mexico. And uh, I come to find out Oaxaca, Mexico is genuinely like a black as, it's like New Orleans, but they speak Spanish instead of French. Um, And so, yeah, I go there, give myself a little bit of time. Some other crazier things even happen while I'm there. But uh, genuinely by doubling down, Next thing you know, we're having, you know, 100,000 plus people a day tune in. Uh, I think our biggest episode was like over 300,000 people. Um, oh, wow. And by the end, yeah, we had affected about 12 million people. Um, and while everyone was trying to get me to focus on doing YouTube, I recognized, I was like, no, this is bigger than YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're doing group therapy. And this is on some days, this is the biggest group in the world, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like focused on their positivity. So 
against everybody's wishes because everyone, you know, we're getting thousands of comments a day. Go on YouTube. This is YouTube. And I'm like, nah, guys, don't worry. I'm going to figure this out. Uh, and actually what we ended up doing is we took a beautiful proposal of all of our numbers, of all of our comments, and we uh, started pitching it around to therapy companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, saying that like, yo, we actually have the largest group therapy in the world and we just need somebody to give us a shot. Uh, and we actually did. We found somebody or we found an organization who helps me get a couple more certifications just so that I'm like, certified to do it. And uh, mm-hmm. now I actually, I, I host, you know, group therapy for a couple different companies uh, all over the world. Now. That's awesome. So had you done like group therapy before this whole thing? So so this was something you just got into. That's pretty cool, man. And you don't have to like go to college or anything like that to do like man, therapy? I, you know, what's, what's so beautiful is, is uh, and this is actually one thing that I, I try and uh, iterate quite a bit is that each of us is each of us within our own life experience has a certain amount of wisdom and knowledge that they're able to pick up. Right. And so although there's this incredible wealth of information from, you know, Western uh, ideology and Western therapy, right. There's also so many other versions, right. Of healing, of patience, uh, of growth, right. That come from, completely different versions of the world, right? So, you know, genuinely, you know, I grew up on Section 8, you know what I'm saying? My, literally, my family, we're the last slaves in America. My grandmother was an actual slave, ran off of the cotton field at 19 years old in South Carolina, right? Oh, wow. So, I mean, there are things that we also learned innately, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, genuinely by being able to show, right? And I mean, we literally, we had the numbers to back this, you know, that, Look, man, we have 12 million people who've tuned into this. We have thousands upon thousands of comments of the healing uh, that has taken place, you know, under my version um, of wisdom, which is, you know, something that's been passed down for generations upon generations in our community and our culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, luckily enough, just because of the leverage that we had, uh, we were able to, you know, find someone who was like, hey, if you do this and this, you are technically certified to be able to do this. And yeah, that's, that is my truth. That's awesome, man. So this group therapy, is it like uh like black centered or is it just like open to everybody? Man, honestly, so I have uh, about two different groups that I work with. One group is, you know, some of the top one percenters in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm obviously not gonna name drop it. I mean, just some of the biggest companies that you could ever even imagine. Uh, some of their VPs, some of their CFOs, uh, you know, are people that, you know, have been some of my students, uh, as well as I have another that is a little bit close. It's like middle America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so more like, you know, the salt of, you know, good old America. Um, yeah. But honestly, the people I teach look nothing like me and have had backgrounds that are almost polar opposite. Um, and yeah. now I'm trying to expand back into our community. That's awesome, man. So how do you, like, you, like, do this group therapy over Zoom? Or is it, like, on any other kind of space? Yeah, so, you know, we do it online on Zoom. Uh, and, you know, it's so beautiful is after being able to do this now for about three years, um, and now we also provide it, you know, in real life, right? So, yeah. you know, we literally, we are doing, you know, free group therapy in Turkey. Um, 
and we're even doing a version of it here, right, um, in Nairobi, Kenya. So, you know, now it's actually something that uh, is one of the of the free services that our nonprofit provides. Uh, mm-hmm. After you know, now having you know a, a lot of uh, yeah, just a lot of history in this, you know. That's awesome. So, what does uh, a typical group therapy session? Uh, hold up. Uh, sorry about that. I had a call. Let me put myself on do not disturb. But uh, so what does a typical group therapy session look like? Like um, how long does it last? Like what what kind of things do you talk about? Do You know, I've never done group therapy. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's a great question. You know, and genuinely the best thing about this, right, is that the people or the, the students in that class of group therapy, they are the actual magicians, all right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's whatever the group, right, is looking to recognize or connect with, all right? Don't get me wrong, you know, like, so first off, we have about an hour time. And, you know, within the classes that I have now, because I've been teaching for a couple of years, we're just talking about constantly, you know, growth, obstacles, and opportunities, Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I normally check in. I'll say what I'm learning in that moment. You know, I have a plethora of teachers, you know, that I found through travels, through through online, everything. Um, But then from there, I I really allow, you know, my students to create the magic to say, like, all right, this is what I'm experiencing. And, you know, this is these are some of the things that we just try and find the softer space in. That's awesome. Have you noticed like a difference between like different cultures? Like, like say a difference between people in Mexico and America and Kenya when you do these group therapy sessions? Like, are some people more open than others? Or are we all just dealing with the same problems? Man, you know, I, I think that is such a wonderful question. And, uh, you know, no one's ever asked me that before, but, you know, I, I have had the ability to just observe, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing... I think even towards the latter of what you just said there, it's a little bit more consistent, right? Is that we find that there's much more overlap, right? In mm-hmm. everything that we're experiencing. Because when we're talking about therapy, right? What we're talking about is our response to our emotions, right? Our, mm-hmm. And most times it's our opinion about our emotions. So when we talk about these emotions, love, grief, anxiety, um, alienation, right, loneliness, things like this, right, that is over, that's overlapping across all cultures, right, what's the difference is, you know, maybe the version of the experience, right, so maybe, you know, grief looks like one way in Turkey, because, I mean, we're doing therapy in Turkey after the Turkish earthquake, right, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, you know, they just lost 20,000 people there, so, I mean, that grief looks different than the grief that, you know, we were doing when we were actually doing therapy classes in South Africa, right? South mm-hmm. Africa is actually much more about alcoholism. They're uh, just literally, they're still reeling off of the end of something called the DORP system, right? Which was a yeah. barter system where people were paid in alcohol instead of actual dollars, right? Huh. So, you know, their indigenous community has been paid in alcohol for the last century, Right. But, you know, we're still talking about grief when it comes to losing people, right? It's just where it is on the spectrum of experience. And one thing that you notice is, you know, a a lot of even the opinion from it comes from the people in Turkey feel as if their grief is 
more significant than the people in Kenya, right? And the people in Kenya mm -hmm. think their grief is more significant than the people in America. But genuinely, when you take this step back and you're actually hearing everybody explain and explore, right, what these emotions feel like, you recognize that there is really no difference, right? That the experience might change, right? But the emotions are still the exact same. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you find that it's, it's a lot of overlap just with its own sort of peaks of experience here and there. That's pretty cool, man. And that's, that could be, a, I'm pretty sure it's a pretty eye-opening experience, like meeting all these people from different cultures. Um, what I know you talk about what you talk to the people about, but like, what have you learned from all this of meeting different people and how has it affected you? Man, so you know what's been the greatest gift that I've had in uh, being able to be a, a servant to these spaces is that, you know, for the first like two years of doing this, I was, you know, sort of, as I was saying before, I was, at first I was working solely in this community that really, you know, if we're not calling it the top 1%, there was actually uh, another article came out that it said it's there's not just a 1%, but a 9%, right? Which is, also really wealthy, right? Um, but, you know, just not the Jeff Bezos, right? So let's say mm -hmm. I was working with the nine percenters, right? And there was a time in my life growing up, right? Because uh, I come from different different hoods, I'll just say. Yeah. I, I come from different hoods yeah. all over America, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I got my last hood tattooed on my chest, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a time in my life where I was chasing, right, the life that, my clients today have right yeah and even as i was you know just finished in this whole experience of being homeless right and i was first you know just trying to get this money trying to do this hustle right i'm chasing money in my mind right all right i'm trying to get a million i'm trying to get two million and then i start working with these people who have hundreds of millions oh wow and they are not any happier actually i will tell you for a fact they are less happy than everybody i knew in all of the hoods i grew up in wow that, and i mean wow. it's, that's eye-opening it and it's, it's such a deep level of unhappiness right yeah i mean it's it's someone at 50 years old who's felt like they've never actually had a real friend right oh, wow. felt as if they've had to pay every single person who's ever been around them right who, you know, who, when they talk about their friends, they're just talking about a list of coworkers or employees, right? Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about this significant amount of loneliness that comes from this light. And I was able to like start grasping really early on that like, okay, within this, you know, there's, the more we chase this currency, the more we start to have to let go of this community, right? Because this currency is, is an individual right, right? It's an individual ambition, right? And, uh, you know, just as I was just became more and more aware, this is like, okay, so every time I tell myself I want to, you know, for every private plane trip I, I want to take in my head, I'm probably going to have to lose 10 to 15 people in my circle, right? I, I started actually start thinking like, I, right, I'm going to make sure that this money is never fueling me. And yeah. genuinely, I think that became the reason why our nonprofit became or is so impactful, even while it has such a low overhead, 
right? Yeah. Um, because I mean, we, we don't bring in the big donations. Because I mean, I I don't look like a nonprofit owner. To the to people who donate money, middle America mm-hmm. or regular America white people, I don't look like a nonprofit owner. So I mean, we go through all of the, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Side eyes, double looks, you know, everything. Yeah, um, I know. But I live in Ohio. Yeah, yeah, I ain't know if I told you, but yeah, I live in Ohio. So yeah, I'm in middle oh. America. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so, you know exactly how it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so yeah, so having that space of just like being able to like learn that, okay, this money's not gonna fuel me because it, it doesn't fuel any of the happiness that I see. I think that is what started be like started making our nonprofit so impactful because when the money comes in, we are so happy to give it away. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to be trapped by this shit. You know what I'm saying? I just want to utilize it as a tool it can be. Right. Um, So yeah, that's been like uh, probably my biggest learning lesson. I think thus far, maybe, right. Or at least in this moment. uh, Let's talk about the nonprofit. What's it called and what is it that you do? Man. So it's called Santana's foundation. It's named mm-hmm. after my little sister. Her name is Santana. Mm-hmm. And uh, genuinely, it's a family-run nonprofit. And the reason it runs is because, you know, this this is from the side of my family where we're all the last slaves in America. So, you know, my grandmother, she got off of a cotton field in South Carolina at 19 to be introduced to the crack epidemic, right, mm-hmm. at like 35. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, recognizing the household I grew up in, you know, their you know, literacy wasn't really a big thing. It was, it was, it was just, a, it was a different transition that we were experiencing in most of America. Um, and so with that, you know, all of her children are not uh, actually, yeah. you know, uh, I, yeah, you know, I'm not trying to put everybody's business out there, but we all experienced some version <laughs> of addiction and alcoholism, but genuinely we are lucky enough. Um, you know, about eight years ago, we lost uh, one of our patriarchs of the family and that started, like this huge mind mindset shift, right? Mm-hmm. Of okay, if Curvis is no longer with us, but we're all doing the exact same thing that Curvis is doing, right? That's you know my mm-hmm. uncle's name, right? That you know unless we make a change, we're going next. And so it started off with you know a couple members of the family making changes. I was the last one to make the change uh, about almost five years ago at this point. Um, and then you know we grouped together. Um, and we were like, look, uh, we actually wanted to be sort of a consultancy at first, right? See if we could help some of these NGOs who are doing different, you know, programs that we thought could have just been done more efficiently. Um, and of course, you know, people don't always want to listen to, you know, the people at the bottom if you don't have, you know, the Harvard yeah. degrees. Um, and so, yeah, you know, they weren't listening. So we decided that, you know, we could put, you know, a couple of dollars together, each of us and, uh, you know, form our own nonprofit. So, you know, it's a family run, uh, you know, it's my cousin, it's my sister, it's now my dad, it's my aunt. Um, and really all we're trying to do is like make the world a little bit better, you know, one day at a time. And uh, we just find all the ways to be servants of, you know, different places around the world to do it. So what is it exactly that you could do? I think you mentioned uh, before I started recording about like community refrigerators. So if we could just yeah. uh, talk about how it works and and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so one of the things we do is community kitchens, right? Community mm-hmm. refrigerators, community kitchens. Um, and one of the reasons that we even do that is, you know, we believe that um, it's sort of a, 
Maslow's hierarchy, right? That mm-hmm. once people can get to a baseline, right, of having food, shelter, um, and like sort of just these basic necessities taken care of, then it allows people the freedom to really start thinking of what they want to become, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, one of the first things that we do in neighborhoods is just provide free food. So we have community refrigerators back in America. We do community kitchens in South Africa, Turkey, obviously Nairobi now. Um, and, you know, outside of just providing them with food, after that, we try and start working, right, with uh, the community to see in which ways they would like to grow. That's awesome. Man. That sounds pretty cool. So uh, in uh, in Nairobi, I don't know if I pronounced that right, Nairobi, Kenya, what are some issues that uh, young people are facing and how is your nonprofit meeting their needs? Yeah, that's a great, great, great question. So, yeah, we, you know, we're lucky enough to where we actually get invited places, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't go to a random city and say, hey, looks like some change is supposed to be made. Like, for us, that feels like white savior mentality, right? Yeah. What we do is, like, we feel as if our work is done good enough, you know, genuinely, some other people around the world might, you know, be looking for that. So we are reached out to by uh, a couple of community leads in the second largest slum in Nairobi. It's called Matare, right? Um, And their big issue is food insecurity, right? Food, job insecurity, education insecurity, right? But starting off with food. So uh, they had seen what we had been doing, you know, all over, and they asked us to come in and start off by implementing a kitchen, right? So that's what we do. We have a kitchen. Literally today, we just fed about 200 uh of the youth right um and they're all sort of attached to these wonderful football teams or soccer as we would say yeah. in america um, <laughs> i was about to yeah, say yeah. like <laughs> yeah, i was about yeah, to say no, what no, kind no. of football <laughs> yeah no, no, so definitely you know uh yeah uh yeah so african football or you know european football it's, soccer yeah um and so yeah we take care of those kids um because yeah one of their main things right now that's and I mean, these are some of the issues just coming from colonization, you know, all these different parts of Africa were colonized without their, you know, acceptance, right? They're mm-hmm. getting completely um, exploited, right, for, you know, resources. And, you know, it, it leaves this trail, right, that is a feature of capitalism that these people who normally, you know, would have all the fruits and vegetables and trees that they need. Um, now they just can't really find a way to uh, ingratiate into this new capitalistic society because their version of life was so, so vastly different from this, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we're coming in first, we're feeding everybody. And then our next step is, you know, we're going to be providing some uh, like literature classes, Right. To see if that can help sort of expand the imagination. Because, I mean, sometimes you even have to help a community learn a dream. Right. Yeah. In 2023. Right. What does it mean to have a modern dream? Right. Quote unquote, modern dream. Right. But just for the yeah. society you're in. Um, and so, yeah, we're that's sort of what we're working on next is we're doing these reading programs. We've teamed up with a couple of tech companies. We're actually coming out on an app just next Monday. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're just trying to see the ways that we can, you know, help this garden of a community blossom. What are some aspirations that you have for the future of this nonprofit? Like, what where would you want to see this nonprofit uh, develop into within, say, 10, 20 years or so? 
Uh, you know, hopefully it, it develops into a thousand, if not 10,000 more nonprofits just like it. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I heard early on is those closest to the problem are normally closest to the solution. All right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we work on here is like, I, I know a lot of nonprofits try and create like this specific yeah, we get the needles from hornets and then we sew them with indigenous people to make this and this. And it makes it this crazy concept that like the regular person is like, you do what? Right? And it's like, (laughs) man, like, and it makes it to where there's a gap, right? There's a gap in society. People are like, oh, nonprofit or people who do nonprofits are like real smart, rich, privileged kids or things like this who are thinking all that. But like a nonprofit is what we do in our community every single day. A nonprofit mm-hmm. is a person on your corner that you can go knock on their door and say, hey, do you have some sugar? Right. And they're like, yeah, I got you on that. You know what I'm saying? And like mm-hmm. that's literally our version of the nonprofit. Right. Like we're constantly just trying to make sure we have sugar so that if anybody knocks like, yeah, I got a little bit for you. Right. Um, yeah. And helping people recognize that like this change in the world is not as big as we think it is. Right. It's really one that one person at a time right and so allowing ourselves to recognize like yeah this week we're doing community kitchens but if next week people are asking us to build uh kitchens right because actually we're doing that now like we've been asked to build kitchens like yeah we can do that too right because like this is just a human experience and i believe i can help and i think everybody in this world can help as long as you just give yourself that credence like yeah my mind is capable and my heart is here right um, yeah. And so, yeah, man, we're just, we are the neighborhood nonprofit, genuine, right? That's awesome. So let me ask you this. Earlier, you mentioned that you're about to, you applied for long-term residency in Kenya. So what is it about Kenya that spoke to you and said, I want to live here uh, permanently, or at least semi-permanently? Is that what you want, to live there for yeah. the rest of your life? or Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm thinking permanently. I'm literally I'm bringing my mom out next month for us to start looking at properties that she can start looking at retiring, um, yeah. right? Because right now that's not even an option for anybody in my family. My grandmother just beat cancer for the second time and is still working. You know, that's why. Um, so you know we are really looking to find some other options. You know, as far as being able to retire, and really what made it so great for me, or what makes Kenya so amazing for me, is recognizing. Okay, capitalism actually only made its way here a little bit less than 100 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the Great Scramble for Africa, which I think is like 1884 is when the conversation happens, right? Obviously without Africa's knowledge, right? Um, and the actual colonization, the year that the British come into um, Kenya is actually like 1913, 1915, right? So we have like mm-hmm. 110 years of capitalism, right? Yeah, But what makes that really beautiful is, you know, obviously this had to be issued or conditioned in stages, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is although, right, this is, you know, one of the most financially stable, right, just when it comes to, you know, GDP and things like that, Kenya is a really stable country in Africa, right? You're still dealing with a community where a lot of their elders remember a time before the dollar. Right. Oh, wow. You still deal with villages today. Right. That will allow you to trade. You don't have to pay for school in some villages if you have enough goats. 
right? If you have enough chickens, there's literally a village here that, you know, we're going to be working with in a very short amount of time because uh, the founder uh, of Kenyan Readathon, this is actually the village that she's from, where, I mean, they have a school that they're running out there and people pay them in animals, right? Hmm. And so, like, this type of community, right, and this type of intelligence, it still seeps its way into the regular ecosystem of Nairobi, right? And so when you're looking at places where you're interested in, you know, this capacity for change, right? This capacity, you know, for being able to lift people out of poverty, of giving people uh, sovereignty, right? It, like, because I've been doing this now for about four years, you start recognizing there are certain things that make for a, a better ecosystem for this to be possible, right? Like people have to have a common goal, right? People have to have a certain amount of connection and trust, right? Um, people have to have a certain amount of talent and capacity, right? And so, you know, when you're in Nairobi and you're recognizing, wow, ton of these kids are college graduated, right? If, if you want to utilize that as one marker, right? Yet a lot of these kids who are college grads, their grandparents or their parents come from a system before the dollar, right? So like mm -hmm. they understand what it means to barter, right? Or what it means to, you know, you wash my hand, I wash yours, right? Or one hand washes the other. And so it, it really creates this incredible space, man, where I'm telling you, you're out here and, um, man, I, I think the only word I can describe it for is it's gumbo out here, you know? Like, there's so many different things happening, but because of the base, right, it allows mm -hmm. everyone to move in this incredible stew. Um, and this real flavorful life. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm ready to be the ambassador for uh, Nairobi. It is, all of us should be, uh, especially, you know, people of color, man, we should be checking back in, coming back to the motherland, right? You think more African-Americans should move to Kenya or Africa in general? Man, I think we all should. I think yeah. we all should. I'm, I am definitely pan-African. Um, and, and, and it's not because I'm anti-white. It's, I think I'm just a realist of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, and one of the things I'm trying to constantly iterate to people here is like, when America started marketing capitalism, the biggest trick that they ever pulled over everybody is that they had a free workforce, right? Yeah. So yeah. they're sending out all this, oh, capitalism's the way to become a millionaire overnight. But the mm -hmm. only way they're doing this is because they have slaves. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so slaves and stolen land. Slaves and stolen land. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's, these are these are the axis of power, right? Mm -hmm. For how America did this, right? These are their two main things. And so recognizing even as time starts shifting, capitalism is a Ponzi scheme, right? You have to have people mm -hmm. buying into it at all times for it to keep growing right exactly so even as they're recognizing right that we're going to abolish slavery right they can't change what capitalism means right yeah. so what does this mean they have to keep implementing a free workforce right exactly. which is the reason why the next thing you know after slavery we went to sharecropping after sharecropping we went to privatized prisons right mm -hmm. because no matter what america and capitalism in america has to run on an an absolutely exploited labor force, not just yeah. a, a a lower one, right? But an absolute exploited, right? Where like yeah. literally zero cents on the dollar, right? Exactly. Um, 
And when you start looking at that, you know, from a broader view, and especially from the neighborhoods I come from, and I was just looking at this and I was like, I don't have to be mad at anybody. I can just observe that, yes, there is a chance for me to win, but America can't allow me to win and my whole family to win. Or if yeah. my whole family wins, they can't allow my whole block to win. And if my whole exactly. block wins, they can't allow my whole... Eventually, it has to stop somewhere or else capitalism fucking upends exactly. itself. Yeah. And, and so when, when you're able to look at it, I think through a, an empathetic standpoint, right? And being like, yo, like, I understand what it is. I, I, I know maybe some of y'all want to make the changes, but look, bro, it is what it is. And I'm not going to live my life to be somebody else's free workforce, right? Exactly. Um, and so, you know, genuinely, I, I think all, I think all African-Americans should really take the space to see what it's like, you know, especially in places that are asking for you to come home. And I'm telling you, once we start making this leap and recognizing, oh, they give us this media just so that we don't leave, right? The Africa yeah. that we know is nothing like the Africa that exists. Exactly. They have to yeah. feed us a certain thing so that we will never take the leap. Man, when I came to Nairobi and found out, man, they have something, it's called M-Pesa, right? It's mm -hmm. like Cash App slash Venmo, but it's way fucking better, way more efficient, right? You could pay your landlord, you could pay your drug dealer in this. Literally, the whole <laughs> thing is on this, right? They've had yeah. this out for like 20 years, right? Yeah. I'm like, I'm marveling over the technology, how much better it is than Venmo today. They're like, yeah. oh, we've had this for 20 years. Like, what are you talking about? Why are you? I'm like, man, I thought 20 years ago, y'all were still on giraffes. That's what they would say. Yeah, you know, exactly. And so recognizing yeah. it's, it's like, it, it's a conscious, it's a conscious manipulation. And yes, I invite this, man. As soon as I came out here, man, I mean, it's a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer. Right. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So, uh, you know, it's been about 30 minutes. Um, I guess I would just ask, um, um, let's see here. Where can they find you? I know um, your Instagram is Brandon Be Good, but uh, if people Brandon want to be learn, happy, Brandon Be Happy, that's right. If people yeah. want to learn more about your nonprofit, um, is there like a website they can go to? Or yeah, of course, you can yeah. check out Santana's uh, Santana's Foundation dot org, right? Mm -hmm. um, or you can also just check us out on Instagram. Um, at Santana's Fund, all right? Uh, but yeah, just come check us out. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, incredible things. Awesome, awesome, man. Hey, this was a really good talk, man. I learned a lot. Um, this is very inspirational. Um, I know I, you mentioned uh, about your, you said your grandmother was one of the last slaves and, and then you said she ran into the crack ep epidemic. So, you saying she was like a slave, like in the seventies and eighties, or in the sixties? In the sixties, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I know, I'm, and yeah. then like twenty years later, and it's like let's say twenty five years later, right? DC's introduced the crack early, like mid eighties, yeah. right? Um, and so yeah, I mean, literally maybe twenty years between her being off of. Not even just being off of plantation. My grandmother didn't know what Thanksgiving was until she was wow. 20 years old. And picked wild, the tobacco, the corn for it every single year of her life. So, I, I mean, we're talking about a whole different world my grandmother was coming from um, into D.C. And so, yeah, for 
the, uh, the crack epidemic to be starting, you know, in the early 80s. I mean, yeah, she might have had like 20 years of trying to figure out what the world she was in today before that came. And she was still, you know, yeah, rightfully just completely unprepared uh, to yeah. understand how that could affect the household. Wow. I can I can only imagine. That's that's a story right there, man. You know, that that's oh, yeah. a, that's a story. Yeah. Um, so basically what what what's the the final word, man? What what do you wanna impart on people before uh, you know, we yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one thing I would impart is um don't get too attached to who you are today. All right, because yeah. there's always room for another you that can show up tomorrow. Right. That's beautiful. Man. That's beautiful, man. I love it. Hey, thank you for your time. <laughs> and uh, thank you, man. Take it easy, man. Hey, no problem. Right, have a good one. Hey, you was the only. St-